0: G'day humans, we are but days away from a federal election in Australia and I could do an episode about the election and about what our predictions and prognostications are about the political outcome here. I didn't want to, I didn't want to drag your psyche into the horse race of politics because at the end of the day, partisan politics is just an outcome of how we try to constitute ourselves as a people, the things that we think are important to ourselves and how we want to relate to each other and to the future of our country. I think it's a time to be grateful for the fact that we live in a place where so many different cultures and so many different ethnicities and faiths can coexist. I think it's a moment to be grateful for the fact that we live in a place where we can settle our differences at the ballot box. No matter how jaded you might be about the tweedledum and tweedledee nature of the political parties, do spare a thought for the fact that the issues on which they agree, the issues on which you feel frustrated that there isn't more radical action, are to a large extent issues that have given us enormous levels of peace and prosperity. The sheer bounty that Western democracies have given to us, the sheer productivity and middle classness of the Australian experiment and the experiment in similar Western countries is not something we should take for granted. And the people who try to target the fraying edges of that democracy, who try to point out this way and that way in which it's wrong, whether those people are from the left by saying that the West is irredeemably racist and based on white oppression, white supremacy, colonialism, and therefore is a worthless project, that we should tread on eggshells and constantly be cautious about the tripwires that we might be triggering for fear of saying the wrong thing or sounding like we might be, heaven forbid, Western cultural supremacists, Western chauvinists, whether it's that or whether it's right-wingers who are equally despondent and equally aggressive in saying that we shouldn't stand up for hypocritical principles because really we're all just carping and moaning in a big cultural miasma and that the strong should triumph over the weak. Regardless of what perspective you're coming from, if you're attacking the democratic project instead of being involved in it, if you're assuming that your opponents have nothing worthwhile to say, if you're more interested in winning fights than in understanding your fellow citizens, then you, my friend, are part of the problem. So let's talk about the big things. Not the election. The election matters, but it doesn't matter as much as holding this whole ship together, figuring out how we can live together, having conversations that are big and thoughtful and inspiring and sometimes, yes, uncomfortable. Today on the show, this is one of those conversations that I really love where... I start out wanting to talk to a really clever person about one thing, and then we just wander off into all kinds of uncomfortable territory, uh, a conversation at its best, conversation like it is when you're just having a coffee or a drink or a cocktail or a beer with uh, someone with a, a brilliant mind. And Cecile Shea is one such person. She was a U.S. diplomat for more than 20 years. She worked a lot on Asian issues. She worked in the Asia-Pacific. She was the political advisor to the U.S. Marine Corps in the Asia-Pacific theatre, and she was a a press attache and media analysis chief at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. She's worked at the embassy in Pakistan, in Thailand, in Israel, in Scotland. So she knows everything about foreign policy in the United States. And I wanted to talk to her because she has fascinating ideas about Ukraine and a deep understanding of what Russia might be up to and how the West is responding and should respond. I thought it was time for a bit of a Ukraine check-in, but as she started talking, I started realising this is an interesting person to speak with about American power generally, especially in the part of the world that I live in, where there's deep concern about the future of security, the future of China, the future of Taiwan, how middle-sized democracies like Australia can live in the 21st century. When American leadership is waning and untrusted and there are these big alternatives to the democratic liberal order in the form of Russia and China that propose a very different way of thinking about how countries should deal with the world and what happens to the countries who have sat in comfort, some would say in smugness in the post-war era throughout the 20th century, feeling like we've constructed the global order and that's the way that it will always be. Then all of a sudden, Putin shoots an arrow across the bow and says, no, the, the world doesn't have to be this way. The world can go back to being a place where countries just send tanks in and start shelling European capitals. Where does that leave us all? This conversation contains an enormous number of clues. I hope you enjoy as much as I did this chat with the one and only Cecile Shea. What did you have for lunch?
1: (laughs) What did I have for lunch? Fish sticks. (laughs) <laughs> How about you? What did you have for lunch?
0: Well, it's uh, seven forty in the morning. So oh, okay. I had so, if... <laughs> lunch or breakfast yet? But uh, what did i have you say, I had some beef jerky and a yogurt. It was a weird lunch. I was just in right? My place before my radio show. So, was... well,
1: it's high in protein. So, that's okay. uh,
0: yeah, exactly. That was <laughs> that was the only goal. Just don't have a lot of carbs and then crash <laughs> halfway through the afternoon. <laughs> um, so, let's. Uh, I'd, I'd love to just get your thoughts about where where we are. I mean, it, when. After after the initial onslaught on Ukraine, I feel like everyone was sort of on the same page about, well, we just have to make this untenable. This is something that can't happen in the 21st century. Um, right. If you could parachute back and talk to yourself at the beginning of the invasion and tell yourself where we are now, would you be pleased or upset or somewhere in between?
1: Yeah, I'd be pleased. Um, I'd also be even angrier than I was at the time. And I was angry at the time because it was our inaction for, what, 10 or 15 years against Putin's increasingly egregious behavior that had led to this horrible war, which is first and foremost a humanitarian disaster for the Ukrainian people, but also, you know, for the Russian soldiers who are dying and suffering in this war. But it's also an economic catastrophe for much of the planet, and it could turn into an even larger humanitarian catastrophe this summer if we end up with the kind of food shortages that look like could occur. So I find myself being angry for not standing up to Putin sooner, and that anger has only increased. You know, the obvious surprise has been how terrible the Russian army is. I mean, I knew they weren't going to be as good as people thought they were going to be, but I honestly didn't think they were going to be this bad. And I just have my appreciation and esteem for the Ukrainian people um, has also increased. And the last thing is, it's just a reminder of the fact that leaders sometimes rise to the top at moments when a country or a group of people need them the most. If you had told any of us in January that Zelensky was going to be capable of showing this kind of leadership uh, throughout a war. I I don't think most of us would have believed you, Um, but he he has just turned out to be this person of extraordinary ability and capabilities. So that's the other thing that has pleasantly surprised me amongst all this horror.
0: Are his extraordinary abilities and capabilities in the realm of strategy or just in the realm of uh, keeping a
1: a strong spine? Well, certainly the strong spine and, and being able to communicate well at a time when your country needs to know that there is someone who has their backs at the top. I mean, that's important, right? I mean, Winston Churchill may have been a very fine strategist, um, as was FDR, but at the end of the day, where they excelled was maintaining the morale of their populations. And Zelensky understands that. Of course, he comes out of television, so he knows how to talk to people in ways that they will understand. And he has done really a superb job. He also Knows how to make the big decisions. This is, uh, we're going to find out exactly what's going on behind the scenes sometime at some later point, right? We don't even actually understand how the decisions are being made in his cabinet and among his military leaders. But he seems like the kind of person who trusts his people to make the right decisions. Um, He's in charge, clearly, and people respect him for that. But he has managed to surround himself with people who have made some very Good decisions, and with some military leaders who, again, by now are quite experienced. They've been fighting the Russians since 2014. I don't think Putin realized how much on-the-job training he was giving them all these years, um, and and so he's kind of been blessed with some people who've made some good decisions. The other thing that he's been really good at is gaining international support, and a lot of his success is because of. NATO intelligence support, U.S. intelligence support. Um, I imagine that the Aussies are helping where they can. Obviously, Europe is not one of their central theaters, but he has known how to make an impression and push the right buttons with all sorts of different foreign governments uh, to the point where he actually got the Israelis to apologize. And Israelis don't do that, you know, so uh, (laughs) I mean, I serve in (laughs) Israel. It's not something that comes easily to them. It's really it really is not something that comes easily to them. And so he he knows how to communicate with the people whose help and support he needs right now.
0: What did he get the Israelis to apologize for?
1: Oh, you know. um, So this is where I'm going to get a little confused, but he uh, it it started with the Russians. complaining uh, and and making some really obnoxious statements about um uh, about jews basically of course zelensky is jewish and the prime minister is also jewish and um and i think quietly now you have israel saying you know we should have supported zelensky more from the beginning and they are acknowledging that fact um of course, Putin also apologized, and he's not one to apologize either. So really, they, you know, the foreign ministry really stepped into it with with their statements. But uh, he's, well, he's.
0: I mean, Zelensky has definitely been uh, been doing the the full court press with the entire world, whilst also running the war when he uh, when he spoke to the australian uh, parliament uh, I, I thought yeah you you really know that a ukrainian leader is trying to pull out all the stops when they get down the list of important <laughs> countries to to woo and you, you get to australia i mean as you well say, yeah it, i, it's, I it's mean you, we spirit. say that
1: and we laugh a little bit right but but actually you know australia is an absolutely vital country in terms of intelligence first and foremost and he's obviously and the ukrainians have really benefited by uh by a whole raft of intelligence that is that has come from various countries, mm. um, but he also knows that you have a long, you meaning Australia have a long and distinguished history fighting, uh, sometimes in very unfair circumstances in Europe. So I think that was also his way of yeah, acknowledging right. that.
0: Yes, yes, that could be true. It's a throwback to Gallipoli and uh, exactly yeah, yeah, and World War um, Two. If Zelensky is so important, then why hasn't Putin taken him out?
1: Well, he may not have been able to, you know, and this is this is one of the big questions of why have the have the Russians been so ineffective? I mean, they don't control the skies. Everyone thought they would control the skies almost immediately. Uh, We knew, you know, I mean, uh, those of us who were watching closely knew at the beginning and were kind of mystified by the Russians choice to go in in the springtime, which is Ukraine's rainy season. So we knew that their tanks were going to have problems. Mud and tanks are not a really good combination. So we knew that wasn't going to go well. But just the degree to which they have not been able to meet any of their early goals is quite striking. And really, in order to decapitate the government, they would have had to take Kyiv. They clearly were planning to take Kyiv and they couldn't. I mean, they gave up on that goal very early. So, but just to um,
0: clarify, I I mean, I would, I'm not, I have no idea about these things, but I would assume that there are only a dozen places that Zelensky would be and that you don't necessarily need to control the air. I mean, Russia's army surely has land based bunker-busting missiles that they could hurl at a whole bunch of suspected targets and just obliterate entire city blocks from the land, couldn't they?
1: Um, you know, in theory, I we don't really know where he's hiding at all of the times and what kind of facilities they have built since 2014. They've probably built some pretty extreme ones. It also... Appeared particularly in the early days of the war that Russia was trying to avoid creating more enemies than it had to in the Ukraine, such as by obliterating Kiev. Now they ended up causing a lot of damage in in Kiev in the end. Um, so it's a good question. I mean, it's one of the questions that is going to come up later, which is, did the Russians actually try to assassinate Zelensky um, and and just fail? Did they think that they had double agents available to do it, and then those double agents backed out on them? That's a possibility. Or did they just decide that making him a martyr wasn't worth it? Um, so, I mean, they've just not been very good at executing a lot of different things. And and it, it will be interesting if historians can figure out what the problems were. I mean, their lack of, of communications ability has been a problem, too. And we don't know how much of their comms uh, you, uh, the Ukrainian military has access to. But it appears a lot because they have not been communicating in In classified channels. They've been communicating on open networks. Their classified channels seem to have failed at the beginning of the invasion.
0: Wow. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. Have they just been
0: keeping their military up to speed over the past few? decade well they, they've been out?
1: using i mean they've been using their cell phones you know they've been texting each other they've been using telegram it's uh it, <laughs> it's is quite ex- i
0: would run a war, war. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean and so the question becomes now well you know is it that the russians really failed to upgrade after the georgian invasion because the georgian invasion even though they succeeded at what they were trying to do it was a disaster you know their tanks were breaking down all over the place their command and control structure was a nightmare they couldn't uh they they couldn't get some of their logistics right to get supplies to the troops. And they were supposed to have fixed a lot of these things since that invasion. And the reality that we see now is they haven't fixed most things, um, possibly including communications. Now, then you get into the question, well, is it that the Ukrainians were able to take the Russian classified communication system out? I mean, that's a possibility, too. It, it may be that... Um, you know the russians thought they had good communications but other people were able to just put them out of business so that's another and thing that we the historians are going to have to look at
0: of course it doesn't help that the russians are fighting not just against ukraine but against the ukraine which is supported by the the all of the military hardware and military intelligence of the the west that the west is supplying when you can you just explain how that works like when yeah. when zelensky and his senior generals are making decisions about things and we say that they're getting intelligence from the West. Does that mean that they're just getting printouts of what the West understands about Russian troop movements and things? Or does it mean that they're they're likely actually on Zoom calls with people, you know, with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or something, and they're, they're having strategy meetings and getting direct advice from other Western strategists? Do we know? Yeah.
1: So the way it, it would normally work, I mean, it's not Zelensky on the call or even his top generals on the call. It's it's their intelligence people with their intelligence contacts in NATO, for instance. Um, and I think the West has been, pre- and the U.S. in particular, has been pretty upfront about the fact that they're providing information, including things like targeting. Um, now, there are probably also, and I, I, here I'm just guessing, I don't know, but normally there would be some Ukrainian intelligence officers sitting in NATO offices, perhaps in Warsaw, perhaps, you know, in Britain, wherever. Um, who are then coordinating and looking at some of the intel and then passing it back to their own people. So, I, I don't completely understand why some folks in Washington have leaked things. I'm s- and I'm sorry. Are you able to hear those dings happen?
0: <laughs> no, I can't hear dings. But I can just hear a cute pooch in the background. Again.
1: Oh yeah, well she's. <laughs> I don't. You're going to keep hearing her probably. <laughs> um, but I, you know, there have been leaks in Washington. Apparently, approved leaks saying that we've been helping them with targeting senior generals helping them with targeting large ships uh, which was a particularly embarrassing incident for the Russian <laughs> military um I'm and, just laughing
0: because I saw a meme after their uh, after their great ship went down uh which was like written in the in the kind of, kind of Cyrillic uh, font like it looked like Russian lettering and it said uh, that the the great ship had been uh, had been promoted to a submarine
1: That's right exactly Yeah I mean and it's it, you know the ukrainians are good but they're they're not that good i mean let's face it right i mean for them to know exactly where the ship is exactly where a significant number of generals have been um means they're probably having some pretty sophisticated help from countries with really sophisticated intelligence capabilities right so the the other interesting thing you mentioned weapons you know some of the most successful and deadly weapons the Ukrainians have been using are actually made in Ukraine. So we have provided them, this is public knowledge, we've provided them some very advanced anti-tank missiles, for instance, and um, anti-aircraft weapons. But it turns out they don't really need ones that are that advanced in a lot of cases because the Russian tanks are slow and they don't have a a lot of their own countermeasures, a lot of their own capacity to fight off some of these anti-tank weapons. And so uh, the Ukrainians are able to use ones that are much less expensive, and they're having a lot of success with those also. So, yes, we have provided them with a lot of weapons, and uh, Congress has now approved providing them with a lot more weapons. There's been a lot of press reporting that the polls went as far as wanting to provide the Ukrainians MiGs, and the U.S. and some other countries apparently asked them not to. Mm. Uh, they They thought that would have just been too... Too much. That would have been too uh, in in Russia's face.
0: I, I heard an uh, alternative theory there, Cecile, which which was that they that the Americans just felt that 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 you know the amount of training and replacement that you would then need for those fighter aircraft would make it not worth it. That they'd get them up and then they'd get shot down, and then it'd be complicated. Is that? Too generous?
1: I don't know. I think, I think that Ukraine has the pilots, you know. I mean, that's why, that's why they were looking at some of those Warsaw Pact countries to supply the former Warsaw Pact countries because they have uh, the kind of aircraft that the Ukrainians know how to fly. And I, I don't think that the U.S. would have been too bothered if those were lost because we would like those countries to buy NATO-compatible <laughs> aircraft,
0: right?
1: which is another yeah. way of saying to buy American aircraft. But, you know, we would like them to buy NATO-compatible aircraft. So I'm not saying what the story that you just presented is not true. It could be. We'll, we'll just not know um, probably for a, a while. But the the mere fact that the polls, and I think there was one more country, whether it was the Czechs or the Hungarians were willing to do that, shows you just how much the Eastern Europeans are invested in making sure that uh, Putin figures out that he can't do this ever again.
0: Mm. You speak to us about the mood in in other Eastern and Central European countries, because part of the part of what's frustrated me, especially in the early days of this, was that there was an awful lot of hand-wringing uh, on the left and right in the West saying that th- this isn't our fight, that, uh, you know, of course Putin has an understanding of his sphere of influence, that. In some respects, mirrors our understanding of our sphere of influence. The United States didn't like it when Cuba was going to have nukes. The Monroe Doctrine said that you know no one should have have uh, the ability to to attack the U.S. from the Western Hemisphere. Ukraine has historically been uh, been a Russian, a part of Russia. So you know why is this this our fight? Which is all well and good if you want, but it completely ignores the autonomy and the lives of. Tens of millions of Ukrainians and tens, of, well, a hundred million Eastern and Central European people who see this very, very differently from the way that people tend to see it in the uh, in the oak covered uh, drawing rooms of of like intellectual American and British and Australian analysts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I happen to have been on some TV programs the last few years with, say, the foreign minister of Estonia and the foreign minister of Latvia, Lithuania. I mean, this to them is not an intellectual exercise. They are constantly traveling around the U.S., appearing on any TV show that they can um, saying, you know, we have got to do something about Russia. This is an existential issue for us. And we really wish your president would stop talking about leaving NATO because that would just be a disaster for the entire world. So, yes, they feel very strongly about this, as do, of course, the Poles and the Hungarians. One one story that I was reminded of today is I was the U.S. Consul General in Scotland in 2004 when Ronald Reagan passed away. And uh, one of the leading businessmen in town was a Scandinavian who had moved to Scotland like 30 years earlier. And I didn't get a lot of condolence calls in Scotland when Ronald Reagan died, because if you know anything about Scotland, you know that they really don't like Margaret Thatcher there. And Ronald Reagan was seen as being (laughs) her closest supporter. Um, But one day, this Scandinavian gentleman called to express his condolences. and, And I was a little surprised because if ever there were a set of countries that would not have appreciated Ronald Reagan's economic and social policies, you would think it was Scandinavia. But he said, look, we lived every day of our lives during the Cold War, terrified that the Russians or the Soviets could invade tomorrow. It was an ever-present risk and awareness for us. And the fact that Ronald Reagan stood up to the Soviets so strongly and eventually contributed to the downfall of the Soviet Union is something for which this gentleman, and he said, and his family will be forever grateful. And, of course, I thought of that because some people seem surprised that Finland and Sweden are suddenly going to join NATO. And I, I think that what has happened is, you know, President Trump's conversations during his four years in office scared them. They always thought that they could just cooperate with NATO from the outside, support NATO where they could, but stay neutral and, you know, maintain a, a decent enough relationship with Russia. Now, Finland has a very long border with Russia. Um And now they're realizing they can't do that anymore. And again, for them, it's an existential issue. So I'm not at all surprised that you're now seeing NATO actually getting stronger and growing more, which after all is the exact thing that Putin said he was fighting against, right? Mm. Um,
0: Why do you think he didn't see that? Why do you think he didn't see that this would bolster NATO? Because there definitely was a sense at the end of the Trump administration and before the Ukraine invasion, I think. I mean, I would have been sceptical. I would. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I would have been one of the people who had said seriously. I mean, are we serious that if if Putin sends some uh, you know some little green men into Estonia and foments some kind of uh, you know uh, anti democratic uprising that has to be put down, and then he has a pretext of saying, "Look, we're just going to go in and we're going to assist with the peacekeeping in Eastern Estonia." And then all of a sudden, before you know it, uh, you know a friendly, a Putin-friendly government has uh, has has risen to power on the back of some phony uh, popular uprising in Estonia. And you know, over the the years and the decades, he manages to essentially make Estonia part of Russia. Do you really think that the whole that the US is going to declare war on Russia and create a, a world war? So, in which case, what does NATO really mean? Is it actually the tripwire that it's supposed to be? Now, I think it is. Now, I think people would agree. Yeah, no, there, there there is solidarity there, exactly the solidarity that Putin didn't want. So what was his strategy? Did he not see it?
1: I think he had bad intel, frankly. I think he had bad intel from the US. I think that he thought he knew more about the West than he actually knew. I wonder if he thought that what with a new chancellor in Germany, that maybe he could take advantage of Angela Merkel being gone and, and in reality, the exact opposite has happened, right? That the current chancellor has been willing to make decisions that even Angela Merkel was not willing to make. So I think he, he and some of his intel agencies misjudged things. Now, when you are in a habit of executing your top generals and your top people and terrifying, you know, look at how many doctors happen to fall out of windows for admitting that COVID was a big problem in Russia. When people are terrified to tell you the truth, you don't get the truth. So that could also be part of it, that he was just not getting good information because people were afraid to tell him the truth or that he was making a mistake with the invasion. So it could have been a variety of issues that he put too much faith in what he was seeing happening in the U.S., that he thought that he had divided us on these issues more than he actually had. I mean, look, his information campaign in the U.S. has been enormously successful. There is no Mm. doubt about it. And I'm not just talking about attitudes toward Russia. I'm talking about tearing us apart in the fabric of our society on issues like race and religion and, um, and politics. So his people succeeded in that. And it's something that we have to move past now and heal from. But where they apparently did not succeed is convincing Americans that Europe doesn't matter. Oh, or that NATO doesn't matter. And, and by the way, the, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, where I'm affiliated, we do polling. We've been doing polling since you know, 1973 on American attitudes toward all sorts of foreign policy issues. And interestingly, even during the Trump years, attitudes toward NATO, toward our alliance with Japan, toward our alliance with South Korea, they really didn't change that much. They've been quite constant for 50 years now.
0: But what do we know about how far that goes? I mean, I think it's different to ask people in a poll when you're calling them at dinner time and they're just trying to say yes or no to get you off the phone about whether or not, you know, should we maintain our relationship with those nice democratic South Koreans and Japanese? Yeah, sure. But does that mean that Americans should be coming home in body bags in the thousands if China tries to take Taiwan? Maybe not.
1: Yeah, I. I mean, you're absolutely right. And that's always a question. I do think that, you know, look, for better or worse, and it is very often worse, we are a war-fighting country. Um, I think we try to do it for good reasons, but the American people time and again have shown that if there's a decent communicator in the White House who can explain why it matters to Americans, Americans are willing to make big sacrifices. Uh, the, The question that constantly is asked is, would we be willing to go to war for Japan over the Senkaku Islands, or as you say, go to war for Taiwan over China? I think what's becoming clear now is that it's not just about Taiwan or China or um, or Japan anymore, just like it's not about Estonia. It's about us. It's about freedom in the in, in this entire world. I mean, with with the in kinds of um, meddling in our society that we've seen from Russia, with the kind of economic and and. Um, what What's the word? Spying power that the Chinese have. Uh, there's a lot at stake in in making sure that the U.S. is willing to stick up for values and freedom and democracy in countries abroad. And, and I do think Americans generally understand that and are concerned about rising influence, um, as are folks in other countries. I'm, You know, I was... I was in Australia a few times about 10 years ago, and there was a lot of concern, more concern in Australia at at that time than there was in the U.S. about what a rise in China was going to mean to the region and to Australia. So I I think that there's a a pretty big groundswell right now of concern about the future of of freedom for all of us, given what's happening with AI and new technology Mm. and
0: things. I mean, I, I do feel there's been a shift, there's been a loss of faith in you know it's such a cliche to say a loss of faith in american leadership but maybe a loss of faith less in american leadership and more in american i suppose goodness or credibility or yeah. something yeah. over the past couple of trustworthiness, decades trustworthiness i w- you
1: know trustworthiness. Do, do you, do you feel like it's trustworthiness also
0: yes i do think that's right and and even competence i mean yeah. there's a there's a sense there was a sense before i think before the iraq war and then we got it again under the obama administration to a large extent where he was a very popular president among other, you know, Western people outside of the, the, the U S just in terms of foreign policy that despite Vietnam, America would always try to do the right thing and, uh, and try to abide by the international, uh, the international rules that the world had set up, uh, after world war two. And then Iraq did a took a big blow to that you know you it gives it gives all of the disingenuous people something a, a, a big thing to point to that questions america's commitment to the global rules-based order you know there's no direct comparison between invading iraq and russia invading ukraine but on a if you're if you're willing to put aside all of the moral questions and just look te- at the technocratic question of when a country is allowed to invade another country there was no, you know, UN justification for Iraq. And so that technically was, a, a, you know, against the rules, against the law internationally. And then when Trump comes in and says, and says all of this disparaging stuff about NATO and about allies and you don't really care about it, people do start to think, shit. I mean, especially if you're in a situation like Australia finds itself in, where its largest economic trading partner is China and its largest security partner is the US. Man. Yeah. You're, you're you're stuck with one foot on one boat and one foot on another boat, and the boats are drifting apart in the river. You're going to end up falling in.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree. I, the invasion of Iraq was probably the single worst strategic mistake that the U.S. has made in a hundred years. Probably even worse than Vietnam, and Vietnam was a huge strategic mistake. I mean, and 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 it has cost us dearly in in terms of deterrent value. Right. I mean, your, your military is only a good deterrence if people are sure that they will be obliterated if they step out of line. I mean, I'm just right. putting it I'm just putting it very bluntly. Mm-hmm. And so what you want to do is you want to never have to show them that you can do that. I mean, well, I take that back. You show them that you can do it. You just have to make it clear you're not going to do it unless provoked in a very serious way.
0: Right. And And if you do do it, you better be as powerful as you as you say you you are, because you can't can't show your class and then you're actually only holding a pair of twos.
1: We we went into Iraq on bad intelligence. We executed the war terribly through, frankly, no fault of some of the lower level officers who were asking for X, Y and Z and couldn't get any of it. Um, We had like crazy ideas that the Iraqis would welcome us with open arms. Um, not understanding fundamental human pride. It, it it was just, it was just so bad from beginning to end. Um, and I really feel for these young Marines and soldiers and, and airmen and sailors who were there and they were trying to do their best. And, and most of them were really trying to do their best. We obviously had some disasters and, and, and with human rights abuses and Abu Ghraib prison. Um, but it, Those folks were let down by the people making the decisions at the top. So, but I I do kind of feel like, yeah. what I heard over and over again, because I was serving in in the UK during the war, and then I was serving in Pakistan, and I was serving in Israel. What I kept hearing over and over was, we need you guys to get better. We need you to succeed. We need you to get your mojo back. And I'm kind of feeling Like maybe some of that is happening with our support of the Ukrainians that, Mm. you know, we are showing that we're, that we have, we're capable of producing some pretty good intelligence and helping people with it. Um, And we're capable of showing international leadership. So I'm, I'm hoping that some of our deterrence is coming back and that some of the world's troublemakers are watching because that's really what you need you know again we don't have these huge exercises and display these incredible um this incredible amount of firepower that we have because we're going to use it someday we do all that because we don't want to use it someday Mm. so and and we kind of lost that with iraq and 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 to a lesser extent with afghanistan we should have done afghanistan much differently that's clear now
0: yeah And maybe this is a, I mean, maybe Ukraine is a wake up call that actually the best way to make the world feel that the punishment of of stepping out of line is too bad to to make it worth doing is actually through the use of international institutions. Yes. And, you know, and economic sanctions and so on. Uh, Because this is probably putting, this is probably worse for Russia the way it is now than it would be if we were in some kind of uh, more militarized situation in which the U.S. was actively militarily involved and then, you know, everyone ends up wrestling the pig and everybody ends up getting dirty here. here oh, it in would Russia.
1: have been terrible. And, you know, I think one of the things that really is frustrating to me is now that we've seen these complete sanctions go into effect and and, and how hard they are on Russia's leaders in particular, you know, I I keep asking myself, well, why didn't we do this after Russians went into the commercial heart of London, and put polonium in someone's tea mm. to murder him two blocks from the U.S. Embassy. I mean, can you imagine if an Arab country had done that in the U.S. or Britain? What would have happened? Mm. We would have responded with overwhelming force. Now, admittedly, well, it's hard depends to
0: on the Arab with... country. If it was the right, Saudis, the... <laughs> we, we'd take it. <laughs> if it was I mean, the Iranians, we, we wouldn't.
1: We, we well, thank. I mean, that's very true, right? We we are very uneven with our expectations of other governments, but the the fact that um russia again and again has gotten off so lightly and and part of that to be fair can't really completely be blamed on the us because a lot of what we wanted to do was vetoed by the western europeans who needed the natural gas or who you know rely on money and and purchases and a commercial relationship with russia generally so hindsight being 2020 we should have taken much tougher action 2004, 2006, 2008, um, and we wouldn't be in this mess now, but we mm. didn't. And and hopefully we'll learn and not let other countries continue to push, 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 push until we just say, well, well now we have to react.
0: What was it like serving in Pakistan during the Iraq war, hell
1: Um, so that's a very interesting question. Of course they were far more concerned with the situation in Afghanistan because most of the supplies going to the US military were traveling by land route through Pakistan. There were dedicated air corridors. I we couldn't have the fact is we could not have prosecuted the war in Afghanistan without support from Pakistan. And um and so it put them in a rather odd situation, right? Because they also knew that we were eventually going to leave. And Mm -hmm. the Taliban was probably going to take. I mean, they kept telling me this over and over. You guys are going to leave and we're still going to be here. And what's going to happen to us? So, yeah, we agree people shouldn't be playing both sides, but we're just looking out for our best interests. I'm not supporting um, some of the decisions that they took, but I also understand that they yeah. knew what was going to happen eventually or they they thought they knew and they turns out they were correct with what Also was going
0: I mean to you've got actually. a significant minority of your country or potent possibly even a majority who thinks that, what 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 are these american people doing here anyway exactly and what is yeah. the long game here and like i mean who are generally sympathetic to the uh the, self, the autonomy, presumably, of people in Afghanistan.
1: Well, and they, like, you know, and they remember, um, you know, and no matter how many promises that we make to them, people have long memories. And so they remember that we cut off foreign currency reserves to Pakistan after their nuclear test, and people were hungry. I mean, they were down to two weeks of foreign currency reserves at one point. Uh, they remember that we took their down payment for F-16s and then never delivered the F-16s. So, so whenever you try to get them to do something, you get all these things thrown back at you and even though our reasons for doing those may have made sense at the time there's always uh downstream ramifications to any decision that you make in 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 foreign policy mm. but you know to your question i i what what was pakistan's view toward the us i think most pakistanis actually like the us and um they They were a lot more comfortable, for instance, with our development program than with China's development program. China was investing a lot of money in the country, but it was to benefit China and Chinese workers. And so there was appreciation on some of our development programs, on our longstanding relationship with the country, Um, but a lot of frustration with uh, with our Afghanistan policy and, and a lot of frustration with what they saw was a double standard on the nuclear weapons programs, which is that we were willing to forgive India for their nuclear weapons program, but are not willing to forgive Pakistan for theirs
0: mm. on the question of trustworthiness it 's interesting that you say that you give those examples about Pakistani throwing back in your face that you know the 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 failure to sell them. Uh, fighter jets and uh, you know with the punishment for the nuclear program this comes back to the the word that you used earlier which is trust the trustworthiness of the US right. and, and the sense of like can you take them to the bank you know can you take their word to the bank if they say something are you absolutely certain that they're going to do it and looping back to other western countries other smaller or medium-sized western countries like Australia I mean when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s I think everybody thought that if Australia ever got into trouble then the U.S. would come. There was a sense that Australia had been in every U.S. adventure and misadventure it was ever requested to take part in, including Vietnam, which most other Western countries didn't participate in, uh, including Iraq. And uh, if the chips were down, then the U.S. would feel some kind of moral obligation to, to, to jump in. I think now, if you ask Australians, I think a majority would say, No. They'll come if it's in their security interest, but at the end of the day, you know, countries America will behave like any other country in the world, which is that it'll do what's in its interest at the at at, on at the moment. It's not going to do something out of some grander principle. And that's that's sad. That's like almost that that's the triumph of of stark, harsh politics over
1: It's a disaster for us. It's it's also a triumph of of kind of lack of education in the United States to not understand our, our our relationship, and how much we rely on other countries and, and other people. Uh, you know, I will say this, having spent three years as the political advisor to the half of the Marine Corps that is in the Pacific, um, among the military leaders, there is a deep sense of appreciation and commitment to the U.S.-Australia relationship and alliance. And um, one of the reasons that a number of the services were so eager to put a rotating presence in Australia is just to make it kind of more, both more clear to the Australians that we're there, but also more clear to the folks in Washington that we have a really unified relationship with our Australian uh, military partners and with the government generally. But yes, it's uh, it, it it pains me to hear you say that because I know it's true. I mean, I, I know that there are countries now that don't think we're going to be there for them. And it's dangerous. It's particularly dangerous when you're talking about countries like south korea or japan that could build a nuclear weapon tomorrow yeah i don't you know australia could also i don't think you guys would i all know but you know if Uh, if other countries felt threatened enough they could build nuclear weapons and right now they don't because they think we're going to be there for them but what if they think we're not going to be there
0: cecile for the first time in my life i've heard uh, i've heard people discussing it in the past year really an australian nuke yeah i I don't think it'll happen imminently but yeah you know it's now on the it's now a part of the conversation and it never has been throughout my life
1: so i mean and that's that's deeply troubling, not because I don't trust Australia with nuclear weapons, but because the last thing that this planet needs is a 100 countries with nuclear weapons. Yeah. It's dangerous yeah. enough having five, seven or eight, depending on how you count countries with nuclear weapons. The other thing that you that you hear Ukrainians saying right now is, you know, the U.S. and Western Europe convinced us to get rid of our nuclear weapons. You know, a lot of the Soviet weapons were in the Ukraine at, um, at the breakup of the country. Yeah, And you. we also looked the other way while you took all of our nuclear scientists into Western countries. And the thinking was, if we moved a lot of their scientists to Australia or the U.S. or Western Europe, um, we could make sure they had good jobs with high pay. And so they wouldn't be tempted to transfer their knowledge to countries that shouldn't have that kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So it was it was well-meaning, but there were some Ukrainians at the time who even said, you know, if we don't have nuclear weapons, what's going to stop Russia from invading us? And now here they are. And and so that's, I think that, I hope that that's one of the reasons that President Biden is so committed to supporting the Ukrainians at this point, because we need to tell countries that, you know, even without nuclear weapons, we're going to have your back.
0: Yep. You mentioned a couple of times, Cecile, the meddling the the meddling that Russia has been doing inside American democracy and the the unrest uh, it, that it has fermented on issues like on sensitive cultural issues like race. Um, I had uh, Jonathan Hyde on the show a few weeks ago, and uh, you know, he is deeply pessimistic about the role that social media is playing in the American conversation and all over the the West. Uh, and I keep vacillating between two perspectives here, one that you know there are malign actors uh like Russia who are creating fake Facebook accounts intentionally to foment unrest and mislead people and spread misinformation in the United States, and then the counter argument which is. That is just a a tiny drop in the ocean, which is sort of nudging things in a particular direction and being a bit cheeky and mischievous. But really, the fundamental problem is a homegrown one. And this is us being extremified by technology and it's bringing out the worst in us. And that ultimately the only solution to this is not to blame Russia and try to, uh, you know, convince social media companies to be more responsible, but to think long and hard about ourselves and the ways in which we're divided yeah. Where are equal on that
1: so I, I i kind of i'm i i take three routes because you know i love the theme of your show because your message is there's no simple answers to anything right everything is mm. complex so i think we're going to need uh, a, a cl- complex approach because it's not just the u.s every country in the world is either facing this now or is going to in terms of outside influence so clearly the first thing that the primary thing the U.S. has to do is improve our education system and finally deal with 150 years of racial history. And the problem is it's even going to be even harder to do that now than it would have been three years ago, which is appalling to me. I mean, you can't even, they're literally passing laws in some states in this country that that forbid teachers from talking about racial history. And And until we understand our own history, it's going to be, well, we're going to be open to manipulation, first of all. And secondly, it's going to be very hard to move forward. So that's one of the things that we have to do is we have to both understand our own history and then also understand how to be smarter consumers of information and news, which is probably true of every country. Um, the, The second thing, though, that that we have to do is, and I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because I, I don't think it's fair to ask the social media country um, companies to censor themselves because that's not how capitalism works. They're in the business of making as much money as possible. And so what we're going to need to do is come up with some realistic regulations, rules, and incentives to encourage these companies to give people decent information and, and we used to do that we had a law in this country from the 1920s it changed names a few times but it was finally quite firmly codified in the 50s that required television stations to have good even-handed um, verifiable well-funded news television news sources so I grew up being able to turn on the TV and watch Walter Cronkite and Walter Cronkite was telling us pretty much the the straight story. And if for some reason he made a mistake, they'd correct it the next night. And so we don't have that anymore. So we're going to have to figure out how we, how we can put social media companies on an even playing field because they all have to obey the law. So what, you, what none of them want to do is be the one company that loses money because they're enforcing X and Y when the company next door doesn't. So I, I do think we're probably going to need to come up with some kind of national plan on on giving people good information and on warning people when they're getting bad information. And, and then the other thing is um, we need to come together and, and, and fight foreign misinformation in a uniform way, the way that the Taiwanese did during their last election. I was actually in Taiwan observing the election. It was really impressive the way that that relatively small country organized to respond to You know, China being able to put 100,000, 200,000 soldiers on computers every night and flood the country with bad information. So, And we've seen other countries in Europe also respond to it. I think Estonia did and some other countries in the lead-ups to their election really uh, appeal to patriotism and and mount an education um, campaign so that people recognized when they were being manipulated by outside sources. So I think it's going to take all three of those things to respond. I worry because I don't think the U.S. wants to do any of them right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as other countries have been successful, I don't see us doing what Taiwan is doing. I don't see us doing what Estonia has, has done. I don't see us dealing with our own history the way that Canada is trying to do. I just, I I, I, I wish I was more optimistic and, and maybe I shouldn't be so pessimistic because we have a habit of eventually doing the right thing when we've extinguished all of the other options. But <laughs> it's going to be hard.
0: Well, if Taiwan had a political system and if Estonia had a political system in which you needed a 60% supermajority to get any law yeah. passed and in which, uh, you know, 20 to 30% of the population could vote for senators uh, that would hold a majority uh, who could veto everything, uh, then, you know, maybe they wouldn't be doing what they're doing either. So there are probably structural democratic things that have to change in the U.S. before... It's feasible to get any laws passed. Um, let's just go in reverse order of those things that you just mentioned. That's interesting. So foreign misinformation, uh, what what explain to people what Taiwan does. They're at the front of the pack, aren't they, on uh social media.
1: They've done well. I mean, they actually have someone on the uh, you know, they have a cabinet level official who is was responsible for responding to misinformation and disinformation coming into the country for the for the election. And it was really a public-private partnership with a lot of volunteers also. Uh in taiwan they happen to use uh to a great degree a social media company called line which is also very popular in japan and i think in in korea um and they had all kinds of volunteers just kind of trying to uh monitor what was going on with line and encouraging people to help their parents spot false information um and they actually created bots so if you saw something that you thought might not was not true. You could text it to a one certain address and get a response saying we have fact checked this and it's not true, or we have fact checked this and it is true. So um, mm.
0: that also that also presupposes that the public has faith in the cabinet minister, precisely, and in the information that's coming out. And and the, you know, one of the things that mind.
1: I kept seeing over and over in Taiwan is, of course, they lived under martial law until the eighties. Right? They are so deeply appreciative of the democracy that they have built and the freedom that they have it's probably the freest country in the world right now. And certainly in Asia, they've actually surpassed Japan in terms of their general um, human rights and civil rights there. Wow! And they cherish it. They cherish it deeply. You you saw that on election day. They, they do not take any of that for granted. Mm. And so they, uh, they managed to overcome and, and, um, And it it was really impressive to watch. But and it also took, you know, speaking of extraordinary leaders, they have a wonderful president, President Tsai, who was reelected in that election. And she um, she had the foresight to realize that they were going to need a, a national response to this.
0: Yeah. It's funny, isn't it, Cecile? When the wolf is at the door, then you appreciate what the wolf might take away. Yes. And in a sense, in the West, in the rest of the West, we're just so, maybe so, we just take for granted so much that that uh, peace and democracy is the norm, that we're willing to play footsie with alternative ideas and with tearing it all down in a way that uh, the people wouldn't countenance in a place where there's a real threat right next door, like Taiwan. Um, the second thing that you mentioned uh, that needs to be done is, combating misinformation within the US and within Western countries here I'm more much more pessimistic than you because I'm not sure that the social media that the actual problem of social media is quote unquote misinformation per se that's a problem and you could outlaw it and you could require uh, you know a certain amount of truth in advertising so to speak on social media platforms but until you address the fact that, Their profit is based on getting us to spend more time on those websites, which means getting us to click and comment and like and share posts, which is inherently biased towards. I mean, I call it an extremification machine. Uh, You know, these algorithms are always going to favor content that either reinforces prejudices that we already have or scares us with. Things that arouse us. I mean, it, it's an arousal machine. It oper- It functions at its best when we are activated, so that we want to engage with it. Uh, nuance, you know, common sense, reason, the the cool, you know, the cool, the cool, tepid cup of tea that we sort of need to all get along, is not something that's favoured by the algorithms on social media, and it, it just couldn't be because it's not as activating as more extreme stuff. So and- until the whole business model of the of the industry is yeah. Uh it's changed. I don't know I don't know what you do about that.
1: Well, I know I mean I, I, I agree with you, but I, I also, you know, I watch some of these crazy things that people are believing in. And these are people who are older than I am. You know, I my mom lives in Palm Springs, which is a retirement community in Southern California. And uh we have neighbors who are in their seventies and they honestly believe that the COVID vaccine contained nanobites, so that Warren Buffett would know their every move. And I just want to say to these people. Warren Buffett doesn't think you're that interesting, um, but they they have convinced themselves, or rather been convinced, of, of a lot of very strange things, and I think about it a lot, and I think that part of it is that we all, as human beings, need to belong to things that make us feel like we are special and make us feel like we are contributing, and one of the appeals of QAnon is that you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself and you're doing your own research and you're, you know, you can spend hours and hours talking the over the Internet with other people. And at least our society has become one of people who are lonely in many cases, um, cut off, do not have anything to be a part of that they can feel like makes them bigger than they actually are, right? Well, well, why do young Americans join the Marine Corps rather than the Air Force? The Air Force pays more money almost from the beginning. Uh, Basic training is a lot easier in the Air Force. There's There's a lot more opportunities for gathering skills that will help you in the job market later on. But the Marines have always sold themselves as the few, the proud, the Marines. Be part of something bigger than you are. Test yourself. And I, I feel like in the modern world, Americans are looking for that. And I feel like social media and some of the groups on social media are taking advantage of that. So yeah. you know, if we could somehow return to, I you know, PTAs or more volunteer networks or, you know, have some presidents who asked people to sacrifice once in a while. It's mm-hmm. been kind of disappointing through the Ukrainian thing. I kept thinking that Biden would get on TV at night and say, look, I know we all want to help the Ukrainian people. Biggest thing we can do is cut our fossil fuel consumption by 5% yeah. right now, which will give more gas for Western Europe. So they will buy into our sanctions.
0: mm." Uh, I mean, you but he hasn't done that. War? Yeah, but the culture war stuff that would come out of that. I mean, oh, it would become exactly. it would all become about how he's a paternalistic, you know, quasi dictator who's trying to, you know, snatch your SUV away from you. Um, I mean, I, I think you're completely right about diagnosing that loss of community and that sense of community that people are striving to get on social media. I I, I do still disagree that the main problem is uh, is misinformation in the sense that. I think that the the nanobots that Warren Buffett is putting into the vaccine and the QAnon conspiracies, these are the five percent tip of the iceberg, and underneath that is a lot of stuff that's not untrue, but is a different slant on actual problems that people get radicalized inside. So, I mean, just to take that, you're you know, you're you're pointing to the way that we need to improve education, and America needs to have a racial racial reckoning with itself, and that there are bills being passed. That are preventing teachers from teaching, you know, the history of slavery and so on. I and mean, I think this is a good example where both sides share some blame for uh, not misinformation, but for hysteria and for turning the dial up to a point at which it's inevitable that a backlash is yeah. going to happen. Like, to take young kids in a in a school class and separate the white kids and the black kids and teach them that the that the white you know that the white kids are different and the black kids are are different and that we are an irredeemably racist country that was founded on uh, on slavery that endures to this day and that it's you know that, that there is something intrinsic about your race that this day makes it inescapable like these are ideas that are needless that are needlessly going to rile up a lot of the american population into into backlashing and saying hang on what happened to the ideals of martin luther king where everyone's supposed to be treated created equal what happened to a colorblind society why do why does my six-year-old have to be taught that their race is important i thought we were trying to get beyond race like that's you know the left has played has played i think an equally uh foolish role as the as the right in this at and and it's part, largely because we all get extremified because we're all shouting at each other on on social
1: and 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 there's this this you know I don't even want to use the word cancel culture but we have become a culture where if you don't say the right thing you are ostracized and so totally. and, and totally. so you know where is the politician or the regular human being who These days can say what Bill Clinton said in the 90s, which is abortion (laughs) should be uh, safe, available and rare. You know, no one can say that anymore. Where is the person who, like Barbara Jordan in the 90s, Barbara Jordan was a congresswoman from Houston, uh, could say, you know, we need to be welcoming for immigrants, but we also need secure borders and Mm. there needs to be a price paid for hiring folks who you are not supposed to hire. No one can say that. These days it's either open up the borders and let everybody in, or oh my God, they're all coming to, you know, to ruin our country. Mm, And mm. it is so hard to find anybody who will look for a nuanced position on any of these emotional issues. And if you try to come up with a nuanced position, well, you're just, you know, one side or the other or both sides are gonna call you names.
0: Totally. And you get hounded out of mainstream institutions, which is why, you know, most people, most of my peers in America. Are people who have gone independent and have gone to a Substack. I mean, you hear Andrew Sullivan saying that, you hear Barry Weiss saying that, you hear, hear Jesse Single saying that, you hear Sam Harris saying that. But these are people who are outside of the the mainstream. If you want to be in an institution, you largely have to toe a specific ideological line. You know, John Haidt is is just still in NYU. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. you know, and John McWhorter is at the New York Times. But uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see in ten years if that if that's still the case. Um, let's talk about energy. You mentioned, uh, you know, one thing that we could all be doing for Ukraine would be cutting down on on energy. What's the current state of play in terms of Germany and Italy uh, getting energy from Russia? How quickly is that being wound down and what's the next step?
1: Yeah, so it it seems like, well, first of all, we're lucky we're going into summer, right? So that's step one. Um, Italy is having a rougher time than Germany, which is interesting. Um, and Austria, of course, has vetoed the latest round of of potential sanctions on on Russian energy. And it's going to be hard. And, you know, I mean, I'm a typical Californian. I own two cars and a motor home. I'm not going to sit here and criticize, you know, the Germans for not wanting to walk around in a freezing cold house and have to walk everywhere. Mm. Um so I totally get that it it's hard, but and these are the kinds of things that are particularly hard to fix in an emergency situation. So it's a reminder for everyone, including the U.S. again, although we have tried to become more energy independent over the last 30 years. It's a reminder for all of us that we really need to move much more quickly toward renewable energy. Um, I don't like the idea that there's talk again of building more nuclear power plants, but I also don't. Like what's happening now, and I certainly don't like global warming, so we're going to have to have some difficult conversations on uh, some very emotional topics and In the meantime, we should be putting solar panels on everyone's roofs and building more windmills and and um building better cars and electrifying vehicles as quickly as we can. I mean, there's still a lot that we can do uh, both in europe and and in the u s
0: and do we end up getting? I mean, what's the game plan beyond the immediate crisis? Let's let's sort of just play this out in our heads. Like, yeah. if 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 you how what are the various options of the way that the Ukraine war ends, and how does how does European energy look in each case?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think the Europeans and particularly their leaders genuinely do want to slap stiffer stanc- sanctions um, on the Russians and hold them to it. And I think that they generally don't want to be paying for their energy in rubles, which the Russians are now demanding that they do. Um, the degree to which they can do that, particularly if this war goes on another six months and we start getting into cold weather again, that that's really a big question. The U.S. can help. Um, we need to export more liquefied natural gas and other fuels to Europe, that probably means we should all cut back a little bit more. And it may be by the fall, depending on how quickly we can move, that we will have put more port capacity. Because, you know, that's one of the things that's holding us back in Europe is we could probably ship them more um, liquefied natural gas and some other fuels right now, but the ports can't handle it. Um, They're not used to accepting that much fuel from the, the US, so if we can modify some of the structures um, and the infrastructure to get these fuel the, uh, some of this fuel to the places that it needs to be, you know, we could probably continue doing this for a while, but it's kind of getting it ramped up, first of all, and then hopefully moving to alternative fuels, because we just we can't keep doing this I mean we can't keep doing it for the planet. I guess, um, you know, Australia has been hit harder than most countries the last few years in terms of climate change. And and if what we have now is baked in, we can't afford to have it get any worse. So we're going to have to make these changes no matter what. But in the short term, a lot of it, I think, is probably going to depend on how much we can change the infrastructure in Europe to get them more of the fuel that they need.
0: Yeah. I mean Australia is is by far the most vulnerable rich country to to climate change and has just endured a, a horrendous summer of floods uh, off the back of a horrendous summer of bushfires. Uh, Which brings
1: and, up the grain situation. I don't know if you would plan to talk about that, but that's yeah, my let, big concern right now.
0: Let's uh-huh. let's definitely let's get to that. I'll also just flag that uh, this uh, Saturday Australia goes to the polls and uh, it, it, if you if you trust polls anymore then um it looks like the conservative government that's been in power for almost a decade will be voted out, and uh, the centre-left uh, party will will be voted in. and And the number one issue for for Labor and Greens voters is uh, is climate, uh, and I think it's number two or three for voters overall. So that you know, I think the the backlash has happened here, and the connection has happened in voters' minds between all of these climate events that we're enduring and that people are so fed up with, and um, Australia's relationship to coal. But yes, let's go to let's go to grain. What's going to happen?
1: So uh, there's a couple of issues, some of which are already we're already living with. Um, There's going to be a cooking oil shortage uh, this summer. It's already started because it turns out that uh, who knew that Ukraine is a major supplier of sunflower oil in the world. And to developed countries, you know, people are like, ah, so French fries might cost more. Right. Fish and chips might cost more. What you need to remember is that in developing countries, in, in the world's poorest countries, cooking oil provides a major percentage of their calories. Um, it's, it's concentrated and it's satiating. So you can't just tell people, go eat more rice or go eat more bread, because first of all, there's going to be a bread shortage. But even beyond that, your kid's going to be hungry in two hours. So, so right. cooking oil is really important. And, and if there's a cooking oil shortage in, in a country like Pakistan, and I was in Pakistan when there was a cooking oil shortage, you end up with rioting in the streets. So it's it's really a serious problem. Add to that the fact that Russia and the Ukraine together um, produce a, a big percentage of the world's wheat, as well as some other grains. And you could be looking at bread shortages in Egypt, for instance, you know, a poor, uh, highly populated country. and we can't afford to have Egypt destabilized. We can't afford to have Pakistan destabilized. We can't afford to have massive famine in Africa. And, and then there's the situation in Afghanistan where it appears already half of the people are food insecure, so it could get worse. So the grain shortage caused by a combination of the fact that it looks like um, Ukraine may not be able to plant plant, and a large part of Russia may not be able to plant their crops this year. And at any rate, with with the, with the sanctions, they may have trouble selling their wheat overseas. Along with the fact that Australia had the floods, which you just mentioned, which is going to cut down on their agricultural exports. And, you know, the U.S. has had a couple of rough years. We've managed to get through them. Um, but one of the things, again, this is where we kind of need a little more leadership from Washington we need to stop producing corn and soybeans for ethanol and produce them for food that we can export. The problem is that might cause cause the cost of gasoline to go even higher. And that would be a political right. liability. So, um, there's a lot to do now. I, this is where you hope that your leaders are all communicating and making plans, right? Cause this is where you hope that the U S department of agriculture is talking to the Australians. And I know it's kind of past your planting season, but, um, and to the europeans and to monsanto and the other seed producers and saying what do you guys have in terms of short season seeds available because <laughs> if we can right. get to the point where ukraine can plant wheat you know in july instead of may um that could help the situation a little bit um,
0: well, maybe i mean but how are things going to be different in eight weeks
1: yeah i mean i, I well it in parts of the Ukraine, of Ukraine, if if they have the people, because that's the other thing, right? It's not just, uh, and if they have the tractors, so it's not just if if things in parts of Ukraine are quiet enough that they can get some crops in the ground. It's if the farmers aren't at the front, if the housewives who work the farms have been able to come back from from being refugees, if the tractors are still in existence, I mean, there there's a lot. That would go into that. But I think we have to try to do everything that we possibly can now or it's going to be just a horrific year for could be a billion people.
0: Pardon my agricultural ignorance, uh, Cecile, but why does it have to be Ukraine? I mean, there's a lot of land in the world and it's not all covered with forests. There are a lot of fields. There are a lot of untilled fields across Europe. Uh, why can't you just go, this is gonna happen. We have to have a Marshall Plan, like we have to get crack and, and treat this like a wartime situation, which is what it is. Yeah. Uh so let's create so many million acres of uh of new farmland and let's get going.
1: I mean I mean, that's a good question. And I'm you know, I, I'm in the Midwest, so I'm a lot more familiar with growing crops here in this breadbasket than I am with what can be done in, say, France. Now France does. Here we've been making fun of France all these years for protecting its farm industry, right? Now it's probably good that they've been protecting their farm industry all these years because they can actually do exactly what you've described, which is yeah. We
0: uh, also said they were overinvesting in nuclear, and now they're laughing on the
1: exactly they're
0: laughing too. They're <laughs> exactly. like, we don't need to import any Russian gas, baby.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. It, it, and you know, the other thing is, this might be a year where your high-minded ideals of not using GMO seeds have to be put on the back burner for a year or two, if mm. if GMO seeds are going to give them a better yield. Um, so, but again, this is where leadership is going to count, right? There's already talk here, well, maybe people need to plant victory gardens. Maybe people should be growing some food in their backyards here in the U.S. if if uh, if prices are going to be this high. Mm. Um we're not going to be hungry. I mean, it's it's almost kind of like people people are freaking out because food prices have gone up eight percent. And I agree that for poor people it's really rough. But I I I just it's 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 the world's poorest people who are literally in danger of starving. You know, the World Food yeah. Program leader said the other day, she goes, The problem we're having right now is we're going to have to take food away from hungry people so that we can give it to starving people.
0: Right.
1: So right. It's a serious situation, but I, I think your point is very good, which is the world's leaders need to come together and, and think creatively and, and try to increase their production other ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, you would have to imagine that if you got all of the agricultural powerhouse countries uh, together and just asked them to increase their output by 15% and paid them handsomely to do so, we could figure out a way to do it. If you put Brazil and Australia and New Zealand and the U.S. and you know, all these Canada uh, and Western Europe together, there's there's got to be a lot of capacity. We're not operating at hundred and ten percent,
1: right? I did. I, there there were weather problems in Latin America this year um, that has cut particularly the soybean crop in a couple of countries down there.
0: I mean, maybe uh, this is like a maybe this is like a vision of things to come. That as the as the climate gets more and more chaotic, we're going to have more and more ups and downs like this.
1: And 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 it's a warning that we have to be more thoughtful, right? Because a lot of the soybeans and the corn crop in the world are are going to feed. Um, stock animals. Yeah, um, right. so for people yeah. to eat meat, and so if people ate less meat, there'd be more, um, more of these grains and 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 legumes going directly to people's diets. So yeah, I we're gonna need to change a lot of the different ways that we eat and look at life as climate change continues.
0: Can you put your progress indicators hat on, uh, before we wrap to and tell me if if I fast forward to. I I have I have toddlers I have twins uh <laughs> who are four and uh, I think about what the world will be like in the middle of the century when uh, they're in middle age what what will America be like and what will China be like and what will Russia be like
1: So America's going to go one of three ways either that we're going to become two literally two countries um which I sadly think could happen at this point um or we're going to get through this, like we've gotten through other crises in our country. I mean, you know, we've been through rough spells before. We've fought an entire civil war. And we're going to come out stronger at the other end. We're going to deal with our, our um, history and our issues. And we may not all still like each other as much as we should, but we'll at least be able to get along. Or we'll just kind of fall into some scary level of, of uh, authoritarianism. I mean, I used to think it could never happen. You you just never thought it could happen in a country like the U.S. But um, the way things are right now, I I do kind of I do kind of fear that if we don't come out of it within the next five or 10 years, people could be looking for drastic solutions. Um, So I I I guess I'm enough of an optimist that I think we're going to get through this. But, But we're at a dangerous point in our history. There's no doubt about it.
0: When you say America could become two countries, I used to joke when I lived in New York that uh, Lincoln should never have fought the Civil War and uh, that he should have, should have just allowed two countries to exist because one would be an impoverished agricultural uh, hellhole; it would be a, essentially a, a third-world country, and then the the arc—I guess you would have—you uh, know, just the coasts, maybe with an arc across the top. Uh, that would be a capitalist economic powerhouse, a place of liberalism and tolerance uh, and diversity, uh, where the world's greatest minds all wanted to flock, uh, and it would uh, would not be dragged down by having to send uh, payments to Alabama all the time. If Alabama wants uh, wants to be Alabama, let them go. Um, nowadays, if I thought if I think about America becoming two countries, it's harder to have that sunny sort of gag because so much of the culture, even in progressive liberal coasts, has become semi-authoritarian. I mean, you you said we don't want to talk about cancel culture, but there is I, I worry that the the groupthink and the stifling cultural atmosphere in academia and the media in New York and California is just as unconducive to the kind of crazy experimental uh, throw shit at the wall and see what sticks uh frontier capitalist libertarian mentality that made america great that i'm not sure who would be the the winner in that if there was intellectual freedom in austin and no intellectual freedom in new york i i don't know who wins that race
1: i i worry about that too and you know i mean i've been watching some things that are even happening in high schools you know it's it's spread down that far now to uh you know people being fired and and pushed out and ostracized over really innocuous statements um And the irony is it tends to be a rich people phenomenon. (laughs) Like they don't want to do the things that would really make things better. Right. They don't want to actually, you know, let poor people move into their neighborhoods or build some multi-level housing in in their wonderful neighborhoods so that more people could enjoy their excellent schools. I mean, they never want to do the things that would really make a difference. So instead, they just say you can't say that word.
0: Yeah, it's a university-educated academic game. I mean, right? Or, you, not- or
1: you can't invite that speaker because it might hurt us too much. Did you read the book, The Coddling of the American Mind? Oh,
0: sure. Yeah, that's it's, John Haidt's uh, first yeah. salvo. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a fabulous book, and and it is true. We we've just, I mean, there's a certain level of insanity that is going on in some corners of the United States, yeah. and it's affecting the mental health of an entire generation, and and so I I take your point. Um, and and i do worry about kind of that con- necessary the, you know the demand for conformity from the left also um, but there is a lot of anger about the supreme court and abortion right now yeah. and i i i really feel like this could be something that is just going to divide us to the point where it will be really hard to to come back together and and i'm talking about people who who don't think in extreme terms and 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 you know who are willing to have a conversation about you know six month abortions right or yeah. or yeah. you know what is acceptable and what is not and and how what other things could we do to lower the abortion rate that's what the the tragedy in all of this is you know we could be talking about better research for birth control and better sex education in schools and um and, and all sorts of things. And instead of talking about things that would really lower the abortion rate in this country, we we just are in, at an all-or-nothing mm. situation that is going to tear our country apart, not just on the abortion issue, but on a lot of other issues too.
0: If it's any consolations, Cecile, I, I, uh, I think this is a wake-up call for America. I mean, I think there are a few ways that this abortion thing could go. I think it's entirely possible... That John Roberts will convince Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett to to punt this and and not to make that the decision and just to say we're going to allow the Mississippi order uh, where is it is it Mississippi uh, to stand wherever it's from and that that's a 15 week uh, rule yeah. and we're not going to rule on Roe uh, and we'll wait we'll leave that for another day I think that's entirely entirely possible if that doesn't happen then. I don't think. That, I mean, either nobody will vote for either. Look, this will put the question back in the place where it exists in all other democracies, which is in the legislature,
1: right. and it'll
0: require people to figure out how they want to legislate this. And if Republicans go so overboard that they try to ban it federally from the moment of conception, then they will be an unelectable party, even given all of the electoral biases towards the Republican Party. I mean, the G- it, it'll it'll require a reckoning at which people are actually at which at which at last there are actual practical consequences for Americans voting. I mean, I'm quite sympathetic to Ezra Klein's uh, theory. He, he believes that a lot of the dysfunction in America comes from the fact that there are no real consequences to voting because the, the filibuster and the way the Senate is constructed and the Electoral College and the hysteria and the partisanship means that it's all performative. So no right. laws actually get passed. So no party actually has to sit with the consequences of the things that it's proposing. So we, so you're playing a kabuki dance. In other yeah. countries, in parliamentary democracies, we actually have to live with the consequences of our votes because our politicians ultimately are required on some level to implement the things that they say. Whereas in America, none of it happens. There, there's no law making. Um, you know, now there will be.
1: And, and, yeah, and the other uh, thing is countries with very powerful high courts like we have and a few other countries have, the politicians have an out because they always know if they pass an egregious law, the court will overturn it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or they don't have to pass a law that's going to be unpopular with some of their donors because the court took care of it for them. So while I disagree with the decisions that are being made by these strict constructionists on the Supreme Court, I, I understand their frustration mm. with with elected leaders not having the courage to do their jobs and just leaving everything up to executive orders or to court decisions.
0: Cecile, I could talk to you all day, but uh, we've had a very wide-ranging chat. I'll let, you, I'll let you go back to your dog. Thank
1: you. She, <laughs> she says <fine>. she's sorry.
0: <laughs> she, I could, I could detect when she was approving of what you were saying. <laughs> it was, uh, it's like having a peanut gallery constantly. It running is commentary. Uh, thank you. Lovely to talk to you.
1: Nice talking to you, Josh. Thanks a lot.
0: Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.